0: this is Salt and Spine.
1: What is fundamentally different from Western food is that we don't start with oil. We start with good water. You know, water is where everything begins.
0: Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. Remember, there's never been a better time to support independent bookstores. Many, like our friends at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, are happy to ship cookbooks to you right now. Find more information on how you can support authors and bookstores on our Instagram page, at Salt and Spine. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Sonoko Sakai. Sonoko is a writer and teacher based in California, and over the course of her career, she's developed recipes, taught cooking classes, and written articles and cookbooks to promote Japanese food and culture. Her first cookbook, The Poetical Pursuit of Food, Japanese Recipes for American Cooks, was published in 1968, and her most recent, Japanese Home Cooking, features 100 recipes that get to the heart of Japanese cuisine. Plus, in these pages, you'll learn about Artisan food makers and purveyors from across the globe, from rice farmers to seaweed harvesters to fishmongers. We've got a great conversation to share with you today. Sunoko joined us remotely to talk about growing up around the world and how that shaped her view of food and cooking from an early age, about how a career in film production eventually prompted her to write her first cookbook, and how she thinks about making the tenets of Japanese home cooking accessible to new audiences. Plus, of course, we're playing a game with Sunoko, and we have featured recipes from Japanese home cooking for you to make at home. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Sunoko Sakai joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Sunoko. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine.
1: Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Of course. We're we're so glad to have you in here to talk about your most recent cookbook, Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. But we always like to start by just hearing a little bit more about your life and your career. So I read that you were born in New York, but you sort of grew up your childhood all over the world. San Francisco Mexico City Japan Los Angeles so I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about the role that food played in your life as a child and how living in so many different places sort of especially when you were young shaped your approach to food
1: right Uh, my father was an airline executive he was like the first generation of Japanese um, employees to be stationed overseas and open offices uh, like in New York and San Francisco Mexico City and I'm the first of first American born child of five kids. Yes, and, and born a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I always say I the rice cooker was invented. So that's a long time ago. <laughs> and, and, um, but in my baby book, my my mother pasted a, a letter from my grandmother who sent a care package that included you know, dried bonito flakes and tea and seaweed, things that you couldn't get in the United States during the 50s. And um, so I grew up watching my mother yearn for these smells and flavors. And so when these packages arrived, it was really wonderful. And um, because of my father's business managing um, this airline office before the, the airplane even flew there, before Japan Airlines even flew to New York. Okay. It, it, transferred back so he was like a pioneer he was ahead of like a head San Francisco there was only there were flights to San Francisco but otherwise Japan Airlines did not fly to any of the other cities so my father was getting ready to service these cities and including Mexico too so we were like probably one of the few Japanese families that were there and after he'd be there for like three or four years then we would move back to Japan in between and migrate back and forth whenever he was transferred again. So I got to experience new flavors and smells every time we made this move. And it was pretty, uh, it was like an intense memory when it comes
0: to food. And, And all throughout where you're, you know, you're living in the US, you're living in Mexico, you write that your mom in particular still did her best to maintain a Japanese pantry, right?
1: Yes, I think it was both not just the Japanese food, but also the language. They kind of come together and we were, we, we have this rule that in at home we speak in Japanese and pretty much maintain a Japanese um table. But of course, you know, like in Mexico city, we had two ladies working for us. We even had a cook, a Mexican cook. I was introduced to some incredible Mexican dishes through to the ladies that worked for us. Yeah.
0: And so I know your mom had a particular impact on your your interest in food and cooking. And I think your grandmother did too. Is that right?
1: Yes. So my mother was um, about, more about uh, adapting, accepting what was available in the places that she was transferred to. Because, you know, we were, we were, we were relocated every three to four years and she had to make do with the ingredients that she could find and hopefully was. With- a bottle of soy sauce or something <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Japanese for that was my dad's philosophy too is like god if you have a bottle of soy sauce you know that's all we need you know that kikoman bottle you know that famous bottle uh-huh. yes uh, yes but uh my mother did a little bit more than that whether it was like making sushi rice with rice vinegar or um using like leaves from our persimmon tree and in, in Pasadena to make. Um, this very seasonal wrapped sushi with leaves. And okay. so the message was not just the food, but the aesthetics, the culture that, you know, envelops our, our our tradition was part of my education as a home, you know, as a cook and as a dad. Yeah. Person and it was invaluable. And my mother just was an amazing person um, because you can imagine she did that while raising five children. But she also hosted people. You know, she had parties. She was she loved to throw parties and, and invite people to taste Japanese food. So I got to be a helper in the kitchen, and that was really good.
0: Yeah, and I, I read too in your book that at at one point when you did move back to Japan for a while, you were living with your maternal grandmother, and you were really I think spending a lot of time both cooking with her, but you also write about the experience of, you know, shopping with her and going to the fish market. And can you talk about the role that 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 part of your life played?
1: You know, it's kind of sad because the house that we lived in is no longer there. It was demolished after my grandmother died and sold off, but it was a shrine. It was a Shinto shrine, a huge shrine with the tea room. And there was a corridor and my grandmother built this adjunct, like a little guest house. And that's where yeah. the seven of us lived, in a two-bedroom. Okay. My brother had a closet for his space. So for me to walk across the corridor and visit my grandmother, who was mostly in the kitchen cooking, was like almost uh, a way to liberate myself, free myself from my brothers and sisters.
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my grandmother's undivided attention. And sometimes my younger sister will tag along with me, but my grandmother had... um would go and, and every, almost every every person did in Japan back then because there were no supermarkets. You went to you know you went to the fishmonger, you went to the you know to the vegetable, the greengrocer, you went to the tea shop, you went to the tofu shop, and then you went even to the beach. And if the fishermen were just bringing in the fish, we would buy the fish directly from the fishermen. So just hanging out with her was uh, an education, an opportunity to really understand how to work with fresh and seasonal ingredients and how how to make the dishes that she loved cooking. And, um, and they were always seasonal.
0: Yeah, you then I think this is high school, maybe move back to or you move to Los Angeles with your family. And you write in the book, you talk about sort of finding a community of other Japanese Americans and your parents found the community. Mm-hmm. And you say that, that was sort of the moment where you began to feel a sense of permanence in America and sort of really started to identify more with a feeling of being a Japanese American, maybe for the first time in your life.
1: Yes. I mean, I, I was sad to leave Japan because this is high school and, you mm-hmm. know, it's, and I was, I, I had studied really hard to get into this high school and then I was pulled out to come to America and uh, to Pasadena. And, but I, uh, uh, I met uh, a number of really nice people, including some Japanese Americans who just took me under their wing and showed me and there was a community of, of first and second generation and third generation Japanese Americans. So the the Issei's, we call it the first generation of Japanese immigrants were still alive. Grandpas, grandmas and great grandpas, they're still working as gardeners or working in nurseries or as fish, you know, in the fishing industry. And so we would go and, and and farmers, a lot of farmers, and, and my mother would be invited to go to their farms or go to their homes. And we got to see how they were preserving the traditions, the Japanese traditions that we were starting to lose in Japan. It was mm-hmm. amazing, like pickling and because they were working, they didn't have access to Japan the way we did while we were in Japan, but they figured it out. They would grow the vegetables and figure out how to pickle that vegetable using the rice that they, the, the rice bran, uh, that is used, sure. uh, that is usually discarded, uh, after the rice is polished, but they were very industrious and they, they, they were doing pickling and, um, making miso. And so my mother, was learning from those uh first and second generation uh, Japanese Americans some of these Japanese culinary traditions that we were starting to lose in Japan they were kind of old fashioned and even the language that they spoke were a bit archaic and i said my i was asking my mother god they, they don't they have a dialect they don't speak the way we do in tokyo and they kind of kind of they were in their own you know they kept their culture in their own capsule. And it was very interesting to see that kind of preservation taking place.
0: Yeah. And then your parents decided to move back to Japan and you decided to stay in California, go to college. Yeah.
1: their wishes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sure. And and at the time you weren't thinking about food as a career, right? You were thinking about, you studied international relations.
1: Right. I was studying, yeah, which is like the most obscure major. <laughs> and it's like, what am I going to do with it? And it was like, sure, I wanted to be, I wanted to go into education or diplomacy. I, I thought foreign service would be a good, and that's why I picked this major. And then I thought okay. I'd go to graduate school. So I went to UCLA graduate school in education, but I, I just, um, I was studying there. I just, uh, my parents just cut off my, my, um, they said that I would have to go to graduate school on my own. I would have to figure out how to pay for it, otherwise, come back. And suddenly, okay. <laughs> I had to find work, and 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 then I started working for a, a film professor at UCLA, and he's the one who said because I was a film lab assistant, uh, his his a darkroom assistant, and he said, "Wow, Sunoko, you 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 also know how to cook," because I would bring these bento boxes to him, and he was like really impressed. He says, "Maybe." maybe you should write a cookbook. And it was a way for me to find my voice in English. And it kind of gave me a firm sort of a foundation to stand on because until then I was not quite feeling, okay, I'm starting to understand that I, I was born here. I have roots in America, but my English is second language. And I, I don't know. And I have a little bit of Spanish in me or Mexican in me. Who am I? But the book really helped me appreciate my mother culture.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because you wrote that first cookbook called The Poetical Pursuit of Food, Japanese Recipes for American Cooks, as sort of, I think I'm getting this right, as sort of your first like professional project in food writing and food work, right? It wasn't something that you were sort of building up to. And then after that, you started to, you know, write for the LA Times a little bit and started to sort of merge your life more into a food in a professional way. But I think that's interesting that your first thing was a cookbook.
1: Yes. And that's only because I've always been interested in food and nobody sure. had to tell me like education is something was like, okay, that's something I, I learned in school, but I was always in my grandmother's kitchen or my mother's kitchen learning. And it was natural for me. My my sister, by the way, ended up being a professional pastry chef. So we had this environment, this very wow. nurturing environment as uh, for home cooks. Yeah, so that that seems kind of a natural thing. But it was really because uh, Lou Stillman. Uh, he's like an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's won like two Academy Awards and teaching at UCLA. And he's the one who said, "No, find your voice in English through." just enter through your kitchen because you're a good cook and you have all these stories about your mother and grandmother. I think it's a good place to start. And because he was a a, a writer, a professional writer, he just guided me. He was, he. was It took me three years to write it uh, on a broken Olivetti manual typewriter. Okay. I got it
2: out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
1: I was like, you know, barely, I think I was in my late twenties when I started it and finished it when I was like, when I was 30 or 31 or something like that. Yeah.
0: And was that, that cookbook sort of the moment where you decided you wanted to move more towards food as a profession? Or no, did that come later?
1: I, I published it and um, I had, my son was only like, I, I, I finished it when my son was a few months old and okay. I was an artist, my husband, and we were really broke. And I, I said, I, I have a better, I don't know, I would love to work in the food industry, but I don't even know how to knock on, a restaurant. I, I don't know. I don't know anything. And it just so happened that while I was at UCLA, my, my professor who helped me with the, the book was in at film school. So I said, oh, maybe mm-hmm. what I could work in the film industry as a like an assistant or something. And so that's how I entered into the film industry. And I actually, I left the film, uh, I left the food world.
0: After that first cookbook.
1: Yeah. my And my first cookbook was published. I was, while well, I had already gotten a job as a kind of a, a film assistant at a studio. And, um, and then I just decided that I don't think I could, I could do two things well. So I, I, and I, my husband's an artist. So I said, I'm going to get this, I'm going to be the steady one in the family and uh-huh. keep food as something that I enjoy doing at home. And I became a, a seller buyer of film rights. And actually it really helped me open up to the world because I got to travel a lot and, and, eat the best foods and my role as a as a film buyer was basically going to all these film festivals and different like locations uh, and go to their farmer go to the farmer's market first before I started working and check out the the food and then I would like hunt for good movies I mean it was always about food for me
2: (laughs) yeah yeah
1: So, so I'm not saying that I abandoned food it was just different dots in my life that I was like exploring and sure. I got to travel to Japan a lot also every, like twice a year and then Europe like three or four times a year and also to other places so i got to see the world which is something yeah. very Im- is invaluable experience as someone who loves food and culture
0: yeah absolutely and then i think there's this moment in 2008 where you premiere a film that you'd been working on is that right
1: that i produced yeah
0: that you produced um yeah at sort of the same time that the economy was crashing.
1: Yeah, this is, we're going, that was like just as bad as the pandemic. It was, I remember it was a a social breakdown and um, I was co-producer with uh, a Canadian and um, Brazilian company producers. And when the economy crashed, you know, the movie just fell apart and um, I just found myself with a huge debt and um, I didn't think I could, stay on as a producer as an independent producer so and the market for independent movies just died and I don't know if you recall that period but um, it was difficult I mean today there's so many movies Netflix and all, all these new media outlets but back then there wasn't and I was in in feature films so I just decided okay well how could I reinvent myself and I was getting older too and I said well maybe and I was actually thinking about that as I was um entering my fifties, which is already a long time ago, but I, I was always thinking, okay, I'm going to see if I could get on that track again. And I actually reinvented myself, but it took me 10 years after the market crashed. And after I said, okay, nothing, I have nothing. I'm just, I just want to find a hole and just jump in. But instead of doing that, I just said, okay, I'm just going to find a way to nurture myself again. And it's going to be with food.
0: Yeah. You took a particular interest in noodle making. Is that right?
1: Yes, I did. Um, I always loved working with flour. Uh, my grandmother was a baker. My sister was a pastry chef. And my mother made good lasagna. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, none of them <laughs> made noodles. Oh, yeah. My brother made My brother was the only one who made udon. And I okay. said, okay, I, I, I love working with flour and I love soba. And I can't eat good soba noodles in this country. So I'm going to go back and just eat. I was just eating it just as to get a good fix and go see my family. <laughs> in Tokyo because my parents had moved back and it had been several years since they moved back. So I would just go and just eat noodles. But I said, I'm going to take a class and see how it is to make soba noodles. And people would say, oh, it's so difficult. You know, there's no gluten. It's technical. It's a fussy noodle. But I just started taking workshops and I, I just kind of fell into it and fell in love with it. And I thought, oh, maybe I could really, maybe that's the avenue that I could take and maybe open it up to something, something where yeah. I could, I don't know, open a little noodle shop or a cafe or, or I, I, I wasn't thinking I would go into teaching, but I, I wanted to do something with food.
0: And then you did go into teaching, right? You you, you teach home cooks and teach cooking yeah, classes from yeah. your home, and
1: as you know, I so I went to you know I, I have I'm a credentialed school teacher. I never practiced mm-hmm. it, but there's you know there's my grandmother was a teacher. There's always education has always been very important in my family, and I thought, oh okay, so there's a huge gap here in American culture where you have a lot of people who think Japanese food is restaurant food. And I had Japanese Americans, third generation, fourth generation were saying, well, you know, during the war, the the first and second generation people were in, families were in the camp. And when they came out, they didn't want to really, they had, uh, some people had resentment. They didn't want to learn Japanese food. They they didn't want it, and became very Americanized. And so they said, you know, we didn't really get to learn. Many of them said, we didn't get to learn those Japanese dishes. We want to learn it. From you. So I started doing a lot of classes that way and sharing what I knew and then expanding on that or refining that.
0: How did you decide it was time to make a another cookbook then?
1: Well, you know, I've been thinking about making another cookbook for a long time, 30 years. <laughs> and I and I would like talk to my, the editor of my first publisher. And I mean, the general opinion I got was, well, you're in the food film industry. You know, you're not in food and you're not a TV. You know, you, you just don't have the credentials to go out and sell a book. I mean, how are you going to sell a book? You don't have a cook. So no. I said, well, how could a home cook have a cook? If home cooking is my primary calling, you know, I, I just, I, you know, I, I, I just said, okay, fine. I'm just going to build my own audience. Yeah. It was. So I, you know, I had, I, I, for several years, I was like trying to get a book going, but, um, I couldn't because nobody was really interested, but that's okay. You know, that actually gave me time to grow up as a cook mature and, um, see what was out there. And, um, it was fine. And I, um, Eventually, wrote a little book called Rice Craft. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm-hmm. with, with yes. it. So I thought I would. I met this wonderful Asian who's based in um, in the Bay Area, and she said, "Well, Sonoko, you know, you make you do these onigiris. You make these onigiris." And I was actually doing uh, a gig for the Japanese government, promoting Japanese okay. to the to the Western world. So I and I I said, "Oh, rice. Okay, I'm going to tie that in. I'm going to use onigiri as a as a medium as a way to." Introduced Japanese rice. And sure. I started doing these uh, rice workshops, these onigiri workshops, and it became very popular. And I took it around the country. And so the first book was called Rice Craft. And it was a little gifty book, but it was a, yes. kind of a nice way to get back into food. So it's a yeah. little card. And I said, okay, um, I thought if I'm going to do another book, books take a long time. I want it to be a general, I want it to be a a a bigger topic about Japanese home cooking, even though there's a lot of authors, you know, a lot of cooks and chefs that have written books about Japanese cooking or Japanese home cooking. I just felt like it was missing something and I wanted to fill that, that gap. And that was by introducing my personal stories, my acculturation to the United States or to other cultures and who I am and, and how I have adapted and Substitute it. So it's not just about using authentic Japanese ingredients, but how do you adapt when you are living in a very diversified culture? You know, if you're yeah. just in Japan, you're in a monocultural, you know, you're in a very homogeneous place. So you don't have to go out searching for things. But when you're living in the United States, we are a very heterogeneous, we're a very uh, mixed culture. And I wanted to celebrate that. So even in my Japanese cooking, I wanted always to. See what was available and how can I adapt it and how could I add my magical seasoning to make it (laughs) my cuisine. (laughs) I've always been about, you know, that kind of openness.
0: We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Sunoko Sakai, author of Japanese Home Cooking. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Carla Hall to today's guests, Sunoko Sakai, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. Salt and Spine brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. You can support food media right now with their new 80 recipe digital cookbook. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at EdibleSanFrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Sonoko Sakai, author of Japanese Home Cooking. And you include a number of different essays about people in the food industry, people who are you know cultivating produce or cultivating goods and um, sharing your experiences with them and their stories? How did you decide to include that in this book? And why do you think that's important?
1: Yeah, so um, when I was, uh, when I first sent out my proposal to the publishers, that was not in it. And okay. Well, I I started writing the book uh, for Roos Books. It was the one, they were the ones that came to me and they were really excited about working with me from the very beginning. They actually wanted to reissue my book too, my first book. Ah, okay. And and I said to myself, uh, and and they're a company that um, they have um, Shambhala, which is, uh, focuses on like Tibetan Buddhism and they have this um, Eastern philosophy label. Of books that I found it to be very like mindful, interesting people and interesting to work with because I come from Asia and my my food is Japanese and I um, but anyway so it was supposed to be a book of recipes and stories but not essays like that and I went way over the the contractual word you know count like several. Uh-huh you know, tens and thousands.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: but I just I just convinced my editor. I said, "Look, I really think that I need to write a little bit more. I want to profile these people because they have influenced the way I cook and I see the world and yes, it will take up more words, but can you please take a look?" And yeah. they agreed to expand the book. Yeah, I it's the their generosity and their vision that allowed me to to do this, but it would—it was unheard of what I did because I wasn't yeah. supposed to do that. It was going to be <laughs> a, real, a small book, and I made it into a bigger book, and I was like trying to make it into a bigger book than that. And you know, they would say,
2: go, okay, stop." <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I'm so glad those essays are in there, and there's well, there's so beautiful photos.
1: Um, yeah. I could have added more. <laughs>
0: I'm sure, and I think it's just so it it does give us such a insight into how you think about food too. To then to then see you know like a rice harvest um, with your friend Robin Coda and like and the yeah. harvesting of seaweed and it just really paints a, a broad picture, which I think is nice.
1: Well, you know, it's like what you do. You know, you you don't talk about just uh, a recipe and how to do how to cook a food. There's always the, the way recipes originate, because a cook has a story to tell. And, and because I came from the development industry and I was a story buyer, I just find that aspect to be so essential. Like without that, recipes are just words. It's a technical text. And I think that my responsibility as a Japanese cooking teacher is to bring in the culture. And the culture is about, you know, families or farmers or people I meet and that's what gives it the soul to a book. And so I think I will continue to write that way. If anything, I want to do more stories than just recipes. <laughs> recipes sure. are hard, really hard. It's yeah. so hard to do it well. And I admire anybody that really does a good job. I, I learned a lot through this book, through this exercise, because um, it was a pain in the neck <laughs> to get <it>
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah. you mentioned this a little bit, but um, this this concept of wanting to center Japanese home cooking in your work. And I think it's interesting because there is often a connotation that Japanese cooking is an elevated art form and a restaurant style cooking. But, you note in the book, and I thought this was really interesting, there's even a a phrase um, that revered Japanese chefs will use of um, trying to emulate like a mother's palate and the sense of home cooking.
1: Yeah. Ofkuro, ofkuro, is the okay. mother taste palate. Yeah, mother's palate. Yeah, and they all you will hear them saying, "Oh, you know, it's this is ofkuro no aji. and they want to use that as a way to be proud about you know their 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 menu because they 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 want to say that it reflects some of their mother's cooking. Yeah, it just makes it very. Yeah. personal. I mean, you can't do that in the kaiseki world or in some of these very formalized cuisines which is sure. kind of a very unique or distinct way of cooking it's like very hot cuisine um, but home cooking i think is um, or izakaya cooking or street cooking there's a lot of okurono aji there uh, there's also like yeah. have you heard of yoshoku yoshoku no. like omu rice, omu rice, and oh this, okay. there's it's the west it's the japanese interpretation of western foods including like my curry i don't know if you know my whole yeah. curry brick adventures, but curry is not traditionally Japanese at all. We come from a country that cooks with, without too many spices. We just want to use the natural ingredients and maybe wasabi and ginger and a, maybe a little bit of chili pepper. will plate um, some of those seasonings, but the, these seasonings are never masked, never, you know, alters the flavor of the, the natural, uh, the, you know, the, like a cucumber or a fish. And, Uh, We like the natural taste of foods, but curry is different. Curry is a a sauce. It, you know, originated, these dishes and use of spices originated in India and came to, it was taken, it was brought to us by the English colonialists and we changed it into our cuisine. But those are called yoshoku and they're, they're interpretations of Western foods. You know, I incorporate that into my cooking as well. And it's fun. It's fun and very accessible. I, I think a lot of the millennials are looking at YouTubes. You know, millennials are traveling to Japan. A lot of them. And right. And they come back and says, have you had that om- omuraisu? And I go, wow, you know that word. And they know more than me. That's what's amazing. <laughs> they know this, yeah. the brand of the particular sauce and Kewpie mayonnaise, and I'm going,
0: wow. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I think your book, though, offers so much of the fundamentals of Japanese home cooking, too. For someone who even, you know, may have traveled to Japan or eaten a lot of Japanese food, you sort of really break down, you know, the five elements, uh, the five styles of cooking, the five elements of a meal. What would you sort of say to someone who wanted to learn more about Japanese home cooking? I think we probably know that it all comes back to dashi. But what is sort of your in a nutshell 101? How do you incorporate this into your home kitchen?
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up the five principles that I, I speak throughout my cookbook. It's very important. And but and the five and principles stem from traditions in China, but you know, it's always uh about the five senses. You you're familiar with the five senses or you know, the five flavors, but also techniques, five techniques. And I just um I, I could tackle Japanese food from any of these angles. But um, what is fundamentally different from Western food is that we don't start with oil. We mm. start with good water. You know, water is where everything begins. And I, I really think that water is sometimes under appreciated. You just kind of take it for granted that, Oh yes, I have filtered water, but water can change the taste of everything. So you start with really good water and and we would add like a drop of a piece of kombu, or we start by boiling water, or we make a a, a cold brew with some dried shiitake mushrooms, and the broth is what seasons our a lot of our dishes. So yeah. it's kind of clean tasting, and if we have to add oil, yes, we add oil. You know, it's it and you know we do saute, we do use that technique, and we we do simmer sauteed foods uh, again in dashi, and so. Um, I would say it's a dashi based food. It's a, it's a (laughs) water-based cuisine. And if you want to learn one dish, I would learn how to make miso soup. Just Uh start making a dashi, just use a piece of kombu and just do a cold brew, let it soak in the water and, um, cook it and add your miso and vegetables and make a miso soup. And you don't even have to follow a recipe. It's pretty simple, but, um, yeah I, I I think that there's just so many different ways to approach cooking, and um i I find that we could um, spend a little bit more time um, I guess techniques that we use that doesn't always start by just sauteing you know garlic and ginger and oil, right. start oil less, oil less, you know, yeah.
2: uh,
1: looking at the quality of water. and yeah, that's what Japanese people are obsessed with. If you go look at sake. Uh-huh. Uh, or miso everybody talks about water because I when even when I'm making my soba noodles, I did an event at one restaurant once and I was um we were washing the noodles. We wanted to shock the noodles in this ice water. And when I tasted it, my noodles didn't taste right. Because the water, the ice water, the ice cube maker was doing yeah. something weird and it just changed altered the entire flavor of my noodles. And so I, I really I just think that the water has a lot to do with it.
0: And you all, you always recommend making your own dashi and not using the granules or the, you know, using kombu and bonito.
1: Straight. Yeah, because it's so easy. You know, everybody's yeah. willing to grind coffee beans in a coffee grinder. Why don't, Why can't you just cut a little piece of kombu or take that dry shiitake mushroom, which you could even make in your backyard, and just put it yeah. in the broth through a cold brew? It's not hard. Why buy a dashi powder that's full of preservatives when you could do that? You know, I'm not trying to be uh, like a snobby artisan cook. You know, I happen to just, I used to not make everything from scratch. I used to depend on a lot of these pre-made things, including the curry roux that I make from scratch because it was convenient. You know, I I grew up eating instant ramen too. You know, in my Mm -hmm. junior high school days, I thought it was the best thing that, mankind created you know like <laughs> in that hot water and I was like studying cramming from my schools and at three in the morning you have something to snack on sure you know but if I try to eat it today it's way too salty it just tastes like chemicals and I just don't want to eat. you know I don't get too excited there's a nostalgic smell to it but so I try to whenever I could introduce something that cooks could tackle at home it might take a little bit more time in the kitchen but I I want to make that available as an option. You know, if they don't have time, okay, go go to the store and buy the best soy sauce or buy the best mayonnaise or, but it's bound, those things are bound to have a lot of preservatives in it or yeah. chemical you know, flavor enhancers. It's unfortunate. Yeah.
0: You end um, towards the end of your book with a passage that, concludes by saying cooking is the same enlightenment and I really loved that and I wonder if you could share how that passage sort of resonated with you as as you think about cooking as an art
1: yes oh read that really, yeah it's let me not by me I didn't say it
0: right yes. it's a passage that you included the artist is it Seho Takuchi yes. uh, once told his students that they should first learn to draw from life as carefully as possible then do so using their brush as little as possible. And that after that, it was all Satori enlightenment. Cooking is the same enlightenment.
1: Yes. I quote that because a very famous um, artist, Potter, and he was also a gourmet uh, cook by the name of Rosanjin. If you go to Japan, he's also written books. He does incredible pottery. He actually quoted the artist. He incorporated Uh that phrase into his... Process of cooking, and so I and I read that in a book by Rosanji and I said, "Oh, I want to also use that as a guide for my cooking philosophy because you have to observe nature carefully. You know, it's like you you have to see the essence. You have to look at a really good ingredient, and once you take that ingredient, you don't want to fuss with it too much because the more you fuss with yeah. it, you're going to basically spoil it." If you touch it too much or you know you if you have a beautiful peach you just want to eat it. And then the pure there's a pure joy to some some eating something straight from nature and it's just that's enlightenment for me. So the so what we tried to do is or what I tried to do is to respect the ingredient and to me that's enlightenment. And I think you could apply that idea to everything about the way we treat our planet right now you know you have we have to take our time to observe and to learn from it and and respect it and don't try to fuss with it too much know, leave it alone and and appreciate it for what it is and that is my philosophy of cooking and i think it's it's so i'm not unique it's a it's it's been around in japan and i'm just echoing that idea
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, we always end with a little game. So, I thought we would...
2: um, (laughs) It's challenging.
0: It'll be great. No no pressure. Um, So, you talk in your book about the configurations of a Japanese home-cooked meal, and that often um, a a typical configuration is one soup and three dishes, sort of all around rice. Mm -hmm. So I thought we would pretend that we're building a meal um, and we would draw some ingredients from our cards here and see how you might build a meal around them. Should we do one of each maybe and see how we might incorporate it into a one soup and three dishes meal around rice?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. So let's start with a protein. Okay. We have shrimp for a vegetable. We have asparagus. Okay for a flavor, let's see. We have bay leaves.
2: God, okay.
0: And the secret ingredient um is oh no, you got the one everybody everybody hates to get gummy bears. <laughs> That's
1: fine. I love gummy bears.
0: I do too, you know.
1: I don't love gummy bear. No.
0: So this is what we have to work with in the, in our pantry today. Um Bay leaves, shrimp, asparagus, and gummy bears. How might we build a meal around me? these?
1: Does that have to be incorporated into the dish? It has to go into the final dish, or does can it be eaten as a dessert?
0: It can be a dessert
1: because that is so weird. If we put it in, I don't even know. <laughs> I know it's probably corn syrup and some food coloring.
0: I think that's about it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you need to grind it up. Yeah, the gummy bear is the wild card, which makes it yeah difficult. But, um, and the bay leaf is not Japanese. Right. But, so what I do is, um, I use bay leaf when I make my curry. Okay. So, and asparagus and shrimp would, asparagus is is something that I would rather eat kind of just steamed and straight, but you can make a curry with this. It'd be a nice Uh curry. Yeah. saute the shrimp. And if you could add some onions, yeah, add some onions. Sure. Then make a curry using the bay leaf with can we add some additional spices to it
2: yeah of course
1: like I would do bay leaf I would grind the bay leaf or add it later but with some um, uh, ground curry powder which okay. I use with coriander turmeric uh, a little bit of you know uh, chili pepper fennel seeds and I salt and I would grind to make my curry powder I don't like to buy curry powder I make my own and then I would uh, put it in dashi, cook it uh, with the bay leaf. Uh, the asparagus could go at the very end because you don't want to overcook the asparagus. And you don't really want to cook the overcook the shrimp either. So I would make a broth sure. and I would uh, do a little bit of a roux with butter or with coconut um, butter and then add the broth. So I make this little curry, curry sauce and then I would um, add the shrimp and the and the asparagus into it. Uh, The bay leaf could be grounded into the curry powder, but it could also be added to the broth and just let it cook for a while. If I want a little bit more seasoning, maybe a little bit more cayenne pepper or something, you know, to spice it up. And then the gummy bear is the wild card. And I was thinking maybe what you could do is I I sometimes add honey to my, to my curry. Um, Okay. Or you could do a little bit of um, honey or meaty, which is like sweet sake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, if it's a fruit flavored gummy bear, you know, you could add apple to a curry. So why don't you, why don't we just put it through a food processor? And I'm not sure if it's going to cook though. It might just become one lump. Mm. Yeah. And it might look like a mistake or like part of the <laughs> the shrimp. If I had some, I don't know, it might look like a potato or something, something, something foreign. And you yeah. might it and it would stick to your teeth and it would... Will say, this is not a shrimp what the hell is this and i don't know i don't know that would be really really weird but it would be funny i would make that from my son and daughter-in-law and they would get a really good laugh okay laugh because we're adding a little sweetness to the curry and if it's not willing to blend it's just going to be a lump i could just say that it's a sweet potato that went wrong or something
2: then the- <laughs> yeah
1: it's a bay leaf they'll go I mean, a, a gummy bear. They go, "Oh my god, that is so crazy!" <laughs> but I think that's the fun of being a creative cook. You got to, yeah,
0: work with ingredients. Oh, I love it really to feed it to your son and daughter-in-law. That's that's bold of you.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I, I do that, and they're one of those people that would just. My son tries mm-hmm. like crickets, and you know, he would eat anything. He's had you know snakes, and so I won't tell him what it is, but I would make him right. know what it is, and maybe you know they're like candy junkies so they might get it
0: yeah they might enjoy it
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) no i don't know i don't know about that
0: yeah should we do one more round what (laughs) (laughs) i i feel bad that we gave you gummy bears so maybe we'll we'll do one more okay we have a potato
1: okay that's easy
0: for our vegetable um for our flavor it's mint okay Let's see, protein we have is turkey. And for a secret ingredient, we have vanilla bean paste.
1: You know, these are all Western ingredients. Yeah. When you bring turkey to me, I just want to stick it in the oven. I want to make some kind of a... I mean, because you gave me vanilla bean and mint, I'm just trying to figure out how to make the best use of it. But I'm thinking, well, um, there could be... Vanilla bean with some kind of a root vegetable that gets uh, maybe a caramelized, you know, like a browned sugar sauce with a little bit of could be a squash or a sweet potato. I'm thinking yeah. I'm Ameri- so instead of becoming Japanese, I'm becoming very American. And uh-huh. thinking, what would I and the potatoes could be the sweet potato that gets the coating of the vanilla bean sauce. That's I- right. I
2: don't want to put
1: the mint there though. The mint has to be a garnish or something for the turkey. That would be pretty. Um, or I could just have a, a little refreshing salad that, uh, or like a little quick Japanese pickle. I wish that mint was like a shiso type of mint. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, which is a family of mint, and I would right. do a quick salt rub and um, have that as a side dish to bring in something that's slightly Japanese and yeah um, yeah and I think I think the vanilla and the potato would go well and as part of a sauce I think with some kind of a brown sugar from maybe Okinawa and I would do a I would do a little caramelized sauce with some butter and even maybe baste my my turkey with that um, okay to, the end to get that nice kind of brown coating I put brown sugar on everything and yeah. I love vanilla beans, but they're so expensive. You know, you use one and you go, okay, I'm not throwing this away. What am I going to do? And I usually stick it into my sugar bowl. And, uh-huh. and I have it like on standby when I want to use it for like a, a, a dessert. But right. the sweet potato could always be sweet. If it was a regular potato, I don't think I want to add vanilla bean to it. But I think if it's sweet potato or a satsuma potato, mm. it will welcome the vanilla bean in a, in a subtle way.
0: I love that. And you would just pickle the whole shicha leaf?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I, I would just give it a quick rub, quick salt rub and with maybe some some uh, cucumbers or um, and then um, lemon juice and some ginger juice if I want, if I'm allowed. Sure. And yes. if you need oil, I do a little sesame oil and that would be the salad to go with the turkey. You do need a, a something green and refreshing. So that could be my Thanksgiving dinner this
0: year yeah i I think it sounds like a great thanksgiving meal so bravo this was so much fun thank you so much for joining us sunoko i I was
1: uh i was uh, okay (laughs) (laughs) yes
0: Yes, this was great so much brian and that's our show for today thank you so much for listening as always you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website saltandspine.com there you'll find a recipe from Japanese home cooking for the Japanese chicken curry with the relish of the seven lucky gods. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our producer Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Are you tired of political podcasts, peddling horse paste, and man supplements? Then listen to The Bituation Room with me, Francesca Fiorentini, featuring progressive comedians, activists, and experts... We break down the week's news with plenty of laughs and ridiculousness, which we desperately need, while diving deep into juicy left topics like remaking the police, abortion rights, and why Jeff Bezos is a cyborg. Get The Bituation Room right to your ear holes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere except Facebook. Podcasts on Facebook are going away June 3rd, so consider yourself poked. The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution.
0: A Cash recommends.